Hi, and welcome back to Black Coffee Talks, a podcast that delves into conversations concerning Black culture, lives and experiences. I'm your host, Tina Abinata-Fariwa, and thank you for joining me once again. For a long time now, a lot of Black people have professed to giving up on talking about race with white people. And a lot of the reasons why were depicted quite brilliantly by Rene Edda Lodge in her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. I won't get into the reasons she provides. It's very thorough, well-researched, and I don't think that in the time that I have, I'd be able to do it justice. So I encourage you that if you haven't read it, please do. But I will say this. It's very tiring to talk about that thing in the room which we're all aware of. We can all see, and yet some of us are able to deny its existence because it doesn't bother us, and years of conditioning has ensured that we're cocooned from its reach. That's racism. Recently, I've heard a lot of black people say that they don't understand why suddenly it seems that the whole world, and particularly white people, are rising up against racism towards black people when it's been prevalent in almost all aspects of society. It's not as if the world suddenly became racists overnight, forcing us to rally up and form allegiance against this new enemy. Racism, as they say, is the oldest, most pervasive pandemic known to all of us. So what suddenly caused this shift? Initially, I thought, it's because we have time. For the first time, at least the first in my lifetime, the world was at a standstill. Coronavirus has had the majority of us tucked away in our homes, shielding, cautious about everything around us, friends, family and neighbours alike, talking to each other from a two-metre distance and queuing up in a way we've never had to before. Life as we know it stopped. But one thing which evidently wouldn't stop was racism. The kind that saw Africans in China being thrown out of their homes because of their race and nationality. They were perceived to be the carriers of this virus, although its origins were traced to China and not Africa. It was the kind that saw black people throughout the diaspora dying at a disproportionate rate to their white counterparts during this pandemic. The kind that saw a young man murdered during an afternoon jog and a station attendant spat at in London who later contracted the virus and died as a result of the attack. It was a kind that allowed law enforcement to end the life of a black man for something so trivial it beggars belief. So, maybe life being put on pause in this unfamiliar way suddenly created a heightened sense of awareness of the thing we shy away from talking about. Racism. As an English teacher, there's a technique we teach students to use when analysing and evaluating a piece of text called the zooming in and out effect. We encourage students when analysing to place themselves in the position of a photographer and consider the outcome of looking very closely at something, zooming in that is. What do we get from that extreme close-up? The tiny details we would miss when we evaluate, zoom out, to capture the bigger picture. The death of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Belly Munjinga and the many others who didn't make the headlines are the results of an accumulation of microscopic things that piece together to give power to this type of hatred and bigotry that ends lives. And I believe is looking at the finer detail, the small things which alienate, silence and marginalise black people, whether in the workplace, at school or within the healthcare system that need to be addressed. And it's these things that I also sincerely believe people are afraid of talking about because it would force some to think about the roles they play as individuals in fueling inequality and racism. Now we know that on the whole, What affects the lives of black people in a crippling way 
is structural racism, which leads to problems with discrimination in employment, housing, education, healthcare, policing, law, and many areas in society. These are grand issues that need to be dismantled through the passing of laws and legislation. These are things that need to be addressed by those in power. And while black people have to continue to challenge the status quo, because that's what's gotten us this far in terms of progress, white people have to begin doing the work to check racism within their homes, at their place of work, and sadly, even in places of worship. Recently, I've seen a lot of questionable displays of what is meant to be some white people atoning for their guilt, from washing the feet of black religious leaders to kneeling before black people and asking for forgiveness. These performances, which are nothing more than that, only serve to make individuals feel good, but doesn't actually do anything to end injustice. It doesn't end police violence and certainly doesn't chip away at structural racism. Hence why so many of us are in support of what has now become the global protest against racism. These grand unified acts force governments to rethink laws and policy. For example, in the UK, as a direct result of the protest, the Crown Prosecution Service has been forced to review the case against the death of Beli Munjunga, which was closed by the police. In America, as a result of the protests, we see charges being brought against the officers involved in the murder of George Floyd. And we see that in Louisville, Kentucky, a new law has been passed to ban no-knock warrants following the death of Breonna Taylor. The Human Rights Council have also turned their attention to systemic racism and have held debates in which they called several top UN rights officials to take action on racist violence. Now, all these things seem to be happening too late, often following the death of another black person. So then I began to think, is that what it takes? A pandemic? A grown man screaming out for his mother for almost nine minutes? A trail of black bodies left in the wake of COVID before the world actually acknowledges that we have a problem? Sadly, it certainly seems that way. So what are some of the things that we can impact? Things that we can change as individuals on grassroots level before we reach this point? What are the microscopic things that make up the bigger picture we often see in the news? And what power do we have as individuals to prevent this happening? In the words of philosopher Edmund Burke, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Understand this, your silence against everyday microaggression makes you complicit. Stand up and make yourself heard. During times like this, a lot of people are waiting on their black friend, colleague or neighbour to use their voice and platform to lead the way. On behalf of all black people, I say this in all sincerity, we are tired. Seeing black bodies being paraded on TV, choked, hunted, brutalised, sitting through countless and often pointless conversations aimed at highlighting racism and having white people turn around and discredit your view and question your perception of events is emotionally exhausting. Now more than ever, we need our white allies to do the work they need to do to promote equity and equality. And if you don't know how to, research. Take responsibility for your own education on racial issues. As I've heard on countless occasions, Bear in mind that black people, we've had to use our free time to learn about other races, race relations, etc. And so should you. In the workplace, it should never be left up to the few black or brown people to champion issues on race. Your HR and diversity and inclusion leaders are responsible for bringing in experts to lead conversations and for opportunity for real learning to happen. If after all these protests, your company isn't invested in doing so, speak up. 
Ask your managers what are some of the things the company intends to do. Don't leave it to your black co-workers. The process of unlearning racial bias is for the benefit of you as a white person. Hold your company to task. Take that learning seriously. You want to really be an ally? It's not only about holding placards and marching down Parliament Square. If you're invested in racial equity, show that in your workplace and respect the silence of those of us who don't want to speak on the issue. As you can imagine, it's been an emotionally taxing journey to arrive in this space. As black economic progress is paramount in the struggle to promote racial equality, for all the managers and execs listening, black people need to know how to access senior positions. During line management meetings, there needs to be a next steps pertaining to career progression if the individual expresses interest and clearly has the capabilities. I've worked in places where this has been made to seem completely unattainable. It's been noted time and time again that the organisational structure of most companies become whiter and whiter the higher you go. Often black people are left to occupy entry-level, lower-end or middle-management roles. There are clearly issues faced by organisations in developing black and minority ethnic talent in the workplace. That's an understatement. But let's zoom in and look at what the stats really tell us. BAME and ethnic minority groups are more likely to be overqualified than white ethnic groups, but white employees are more likely to be promoted than all other groups. Crazy? Of course it is. Coincidence? Absolutely not. In many organisations, the process from recruitment through to progression to senior posts remain favourable to a select group of individuals, white individuals. This bias has been referred to rather erroneously as unconscious, but really, organisations are just maintaining the status quo. In addition, when organisations do pander in the name of diversity, they are very cautious to select a model minority, someone they feel is non-threatening, someone they think can integrate in their working norms, fit the status quo without rocking the boat. They want the type of ethnic minority that will enhance their working culture, but not change it. It's funny. As I say this, I think about Matt Hancock in a recent interview in which he names two British Asians when asked to identify black cabinet members. Well, because there are no black cabinet ministers in the Conservative Party, which further adds to my point about model minority and also highlights the problems with lumping all of us in this BAME group. Because while, as research suggests, that the model minority myth favours some Asians, such as British Chinese and British Indians, this idea has fueled a racial divide between Asians and Blacks, and more often than not, further marginalises Black people in the workplace. Research also tells us that the main barrier many individuals feel stand in their way of making progress was their lack of connections to the right people. And it's easy to connect yourself to the right people if either there are shared experiences, norms and values, or there are favourable cultural perceptions of a group. I recently read an article which was entitled The Bias of Professionalism Standards and the subheading was How Professionalism Has Become Coded Language for White Favoritism in Workplace Practices That More Often Than Not Privilege the Values of White and Western Employees and Leave People of Colour Behind. What an accurate summation, I thought. Now, I cannot tell you how many conversations I've sat through with my friends about corporate culture and the privilege handed over to white people in certain quote-unquote model minorities in these spaces. Oftentimes, as a black person in the work environment, you fear being the outsider looking in. So naturally, you make lots of compromises, although very little compromise is made for you. There are so many stories of black people feeling pressured to go to the pub after work, for example, 
in order to network and socialise, even if it's something they wouldn't ordinarily do, because they fear not being seen as a team player or as someone who can integrate with a working culture. But when you are not counted or seen as an equal, your efforts rarely yield any benefits. Things are even more difficult when you're black and a woman. It's like a double negative. And if you don't understand that, then take some time to research the intersectionality of race and gender discrimination and how it harms particularly black women. So white, as well as model minorities, who feel far removed from the day-to-day microaggression faced by black people, should take some time to consider how they are participants in, and for the majority, beneficiaries of systemic racism. Because for some, keeping silent, not getting involved, is their way of communicating their desire to keep their privilege and to maintain the status quo. But we know that discrimination faced by black and other ethnic minorities in the workspace isn't just unfair to these groups, but deeply harms corporations. Has diversity, not just of thought, as suggested by Matt Hancock, but true diversity of culture and ideas places companies in better stead and helps avoid humiliating products and PR scandals as we witnessed from the likes of H&M, Dove, Gucci and many other corporations in the past few years. In closing, I'd like to leave you to reflect on your own working environment and how you contribute in changing the culture for the betterment of everybody, or if consciously or otherwise, you've been silent for too long, because now is an appropriate time to break your silence. Thank you for listening. On this platform, I aim to educate and engage in dialogue which promotes an understanding of various aspects of the Black experience, none of which, of course, is monolithic. Feel free to message me on topics you'd like to hear my opinion on or send through things you'd like for me to share. In the meantime, take care of yourself and your families. Until next time. Bye.